When I was in seminary, we all agreed that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was a favorite class. And it was a favorite class, not because it was a class on all the cool, extraordinary things we were going to get to do. Uh, I was in seminary, not Hogwarts. If that's lost on you, then you're behind the times, maybe. Uh, but it was a class in, in a Reformed school, particularly. The doctrine of the Spirit is a class on the application of the gospel to Christians. It is a class on the benefits and privileges that the Holy Spirit unites to us, gives us, and strengthens us in. And so we studied in this class how the Spirit unites us to Christ's righteousness and our justification, which leads to the Spirit's uniting us to Christ, Christ in us for our justification, and we are we in Christ for our justification, and Christ in us for our sanctification. And that is the truth in our text this morning. This is a Holy Spirit text. It is a Holy Spirit text, not in relation to who the Spirit is, as a member of the Trinity in relation to the Father and Son, as important as those doctrines are. This is not a text on who the Holy Spirit is, but what the Holy Spirit does. What the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian. And the Spirit applies the gospel to our lives. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our lives, which means that he confers upon us the blessings and privileges of the faith. And these blessings and privileges result in Christian assurance. I told you as we'd be studying Romans 8, we were going to be studying uh, assurance. It's a, it's a chapter on assurance. And as it is a chapter on assurance, it's really a good Christian counseling text. You see, assurance is like a tree of life in this sad world. A tree we can turn to. Romans 8 is like a tree of life we can turn to to be sustained and, and strengthened in our pilgrimage in this sad world. It keeps you going. This chapter will keep you going in the Christian life and the Christian faith. In the midst of hardships, in the midst of struggles. It's a key to Christian counsel. As I said last week, I often find in my Christian counsel, even in my preaching, I find myself over and over again in chapter 8. Sometimes I said I feel lazy because I'm always here. Maybe you're thinking, doesn't he know any more of the Bible? But I just I keep coming back to this chapter because it's so rich, so comprehensive for the Christian life and faith. So last week as we studied the assurance of righteousness, we studied this doctrine of righteousness, this assurance that we have that gives us believing sinners confidence before a holy God that there is no more condemnation. The assurance of God's righteousness assures us, gives us confidence. There's, there, there's no more condemnation. And there's no greater truth to fight back fear and depression like that truth. There's no greater tool to fight fear and depression as quickly as the truth in Christ that there is no more condemnation. Now this morning we are studying three doctrines that uphold the assurance of the Holy Spirit. It's the title of the sermon this morning, Assurance, Part 3, Assurance of the Holy Spirit, which is a good word of counsel. This is a good word of counsel to weak and unmotivated Christians. And it turns out that doctrine doesn't divide. It's the opposite. It unites us to Christ. It turns out you need more than a relationship. You do need the religion that Christ established. 
Someone counseling slothful Christians. We're going to find here in this text three important doctrines. Three important doctrines that motivate the Christian. That motivate us with the grace of God to move us. To move us to a life of gratitude and all good works. And these three doctrines are as to, as these three doctrines are the following. The doctrine of salvation history. So as we study the assurance of the Holy Spirit, we're going to study the doctrine of salvation history, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine of sanctification. Wow, you're so doctrinal, Pastor Jared. Well, Christianity is a doctrine, so let us jump into the doctrine of salvation history. Verse 5. Paul writes, For those who are live, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We find here two histories: the history of the flesh. And this flesh isn't physical. He's not talking about your actual physical, you know, pinch me. Ow, not that flesh. Was that your epidermis? Is that right? I'm not a scientist. Something like that. There's no ointment for this. There's no ointment that can heal this flesh. It's eschatological. It's the past, present, and future. Or excuse me, it's past, present, and future is death. Paul argues that it is the flesh is controlled, he argues in verses 1 through 5, controlled by sin and death. There's that history, and then there's the history of the Spirit. The Spirit's history, the Spirit's past is death too. It is the death of death and the death of Christ. And so the Spirit's history is death, that our future may be glorious. It is the death of death and the death of Christ that creates in us a future, eternal life. And so the slothful Christian needs to be reminded of his past. He needs to be reminded of its death. So, they might feel, so he might fill his present with the history of the cross. And this means that proper Christian motivation is the gospel. And the gospel is our history. Paul argues in Romans 6.5 or states in Romans 6.5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... That's our past. Life in the Spirit is to be united in a death like His. We shall certainly, Paul argues, be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So by faith in Christ, His past, Christ's past, Christ's history, is now our new past. We've died with Him. And His future is our future. We shall live with him. It's actually our present as well. And so our minds must be consumed with this history. And this is key to every counseling need. Notice the importance of the word mind here in this text. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. The word mind here is not, does not mean just simply pure reason. It's not the idea of pure reason, but all that is within the soul, really. Everything that controls the will. Mind controls the will, your heart, your soul, your affections, all of these things. That's the mind here. That which controls the will. That which moves you. What moves you? And so this text is about two lives, but only one ruler, one movement, the mind. You see, there are two ways to live in this world, but only one way to live. 
The question is not of the mind, but who is going to control your mind? What history is going to control your mind, your affections, your heart? And when we renew our minds with the doctrine of salvation history, with the history of the Spirit, it is the love of Christ that controls us. It will be the love of Christ that will rule our minds. Paul says in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. There's that old history to which we all belong. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You see, the mind is subject to one of these two lives. Your mind, your heart, your affections are subject to either the flesh or the spirit. Two rulers that play in this world. Two rulers that give us two different destinies. And Paul here includes, with the life of the spirit, he includes not only life, but this idea of peace. He set the mind, he says, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Peace is only found in the spirit. You see, the history of the flesh is a history of enmity against God. That's the history. That's our history, children. Children, do you know your history? What happened after Adam and Eve sinned? What happened to their children? Cain and Abel? Do we know Cain and Abel? What happened with Cain and Abel? I like Naomi. She gives me the sign language. Yes. Cain killed Abel. There's the enmity. And then what happened after that, children? After that unlawful killing? There was more killing. Lamech killed. And others continued to kill. And so much so that the world becomes so corrupt. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone doing right according to their own According to the flesh, they're governed. They were governed by this world and its principles. And what happened to that world, children? God sent a flood, did he not, with Noah? And he protected Noah and his family, but he consumed and he destroyed the whole earth. And Peter says that world that then existed was deluged with water. But out come Noah and his sons. And what happens as soon as Noah and his sons come out? Are the sons like Adam and Eve's sons or are they good sons? As soon as they come out of the ark, one of the sons, Ham, commits another grievous sin, just like Cain. And the history kind of continues in this new world, this old history of enmity, so much that the world comes together again. They all come together to build a tower, to reach God by their own might, by their own strength. This is the enmity, and this is the enmity that we all belong to. This is our history. And we are born into a history of hostility with God. Children, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and... I'm going to ask you that at Kids Catechism Club tonight. You're going to get it. That's the hostility, the wrath and curse of God. And that's the opposite of peace. Isn't that not the opposite of peace? Hostility with God. It also results with hostility of man. Before you know it, we're in countless wars that we can never seem to get over. Even though we're supposed to be a Christian nation, apparently. There's the hostility. It is life without God. 
and without hope in this world. Now this might seem counterintuitive, but this is the counsel you must give to the hurting Christian. You must share with the hurting Christian these hard words. You must share with the hurting Christian this history. You see, we need to be reminded as Christians of the sinfulness of sin. Because that is often why we like, lack peace as Christians. We lack peace here because Paul says we're not in submission to God's word. We're not in submission to God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, verse 7. For it does not submit to God's law. You catch the works principle here? Peace through submission. Peace by our obedience. If we want to have peace, we've got to submit to God's word. Now, if you know anything about salvation history, every time there's a works principle, every time there's a works principle, there is a problem. Is there not? And Paul gives the problem right here in the text. Indeed, it cannot. <laughs> the life of the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, as Paul's way of saying, highlight this, indeed it cannot. That's our history, total depravity. A total depravity equals a total inability. We are unable to please God in the flesh. Quite the contrary. Paul is clear, not by the flesh. You see, the flesh is a mind not sensitive to God's majestic holiness. It's self-focused mind. And it's consumed, it becomes consumed more and more with one's own glory. So it thinks it can find peace with God. The flesh thinks it can find. And it begins to look to one's own works for assurance. And before you know it, your assurance is found in your submission. Your assurance is found in your obedience. And what virtue guides the flesh in this self-pursuit? The chief virtue of the flesh is happiness. Happiness. Which is not a Christian virtue. It's not. Contentment is. But not happiness. Despite what you might see on TV and hear from other ministers... It's just false. <laughs> happiness. That's the virtue of the flesh. It's a self-centered virtue. Happiness. And self-centeredness is the flesh. And it soon distances itself from God more and more. And it will distance itself and it will show up in these desires, these earthly desires, fleshly desires, the one of money, the need of power. The desire to be rich, self-fulfillment and sexual pleasure. That's the flesh. It's an idolatrous bent towards self-gratification. The flesh is self-gratification. And I see the flesh show up over and over again in relationships. Failed marriages. My spouse has not given me X. And my response is, oh, I didn't know when we made those vows before the church that you vowed to receive from your spouse in sickness and in health. I thought I heard that you would give in sickness and in health. And you would find your contentment in giving and serving. 
I find it in failed parenting when we get upset with our children because they're not meeting our expectations. I find it in, in failed church membership where people leave the church because, well, the church isn't just doing it for me anymore. It's not giving me what I need. If the answer, if the answer for you leaving the church is, I'm not getting the gospel, then you got a problem. Self-gratification corrupts every relationship, especially the one with God that we have. Self-gratification is the flesh, and nothing will turn you away from faith like the flesh. I'm just not getting what I need from this worship. I'm not feeling this doctrine, or this church, or this gospel. Can you feel the Trinity? I haven't felt it yet. Or I hate the feeling of that doctrine. I just hate the feeling of that doctrine. That predestined. I don't like the feeling of that doctrine. I don't like the feeling of hell. I don't like that feeling. It leaves a sour, sick feeling in my stomach. And we're such a stomach-focused generation and culture. The millennials, you're the me generation. The me generation. Selfie. The selfie generation. <laughs> the selfie stick generation. You see our lives, sorry to pick on you millennials. I can pick on everyone else too. Every generation I can pick on. Except for Generation X, they're pretty awesome. <laughs> you see our lives are naturally governed by subjective feelings and intuition. And we're self-confident because of our own self. But there's no lasting peace in selfies. <laughs> The flesh, this sad world will let you down over and over again. Your feelings will go up and down. You cannot be governed. You cannot be grounded in self. It's a, it's a self-shifting shadow of self-uncertainty. It leads to death because it is by nature inward focused on the deceitful heart. What? The deceitful heart? Jeremiah, look it up. Is it Jeremiah? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But we think we know it. No, we need to change this self-confidence for a Christ confidence. We need to have a, a lack. We need to lack our self-focus and have a Christ focus. How do we please God? Please God. Not by flesh. By what? Without faith, it is impossible to do what? Please God. We must have faith. That's the opposite of flesh. We need to renew our minds instead of the feels. Believe. Even when it doesn't feel that way, believe. Believe salvation history that Christ kept the law for you, died for you. Suffered for you. Faced hell that you may no longer have to suffer that fate. And rose again from the dead that we might be free. Free to serve God by the Spirit. And so we turn now to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He says here, Christians aren't in the flesh. We're not in the flesh because of this doctrine of regeneration. There's another doctrine. Sorry for the nasty words. Doctrine. The doctrine of regeneration. I'm kidding. It's not a nasty word. Only in some circles. 
Jesus put it this way concerning the Spirit's work. John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, by the Spirit, we're born out of this world of sin and death and into the kingdom of God. So we don't belong to the sinful age. We belong to the age of the Spirit. And notice the if in fact. If in fact the Spirit dwells in you. This is Paul's way of saying not all who belong to Christ's church truly belong to Christ. Not all who belong to the external membership of the church, to its roles, to its institution, do not truly belong to Christ. Why? Because some in the church are still in the flesh. Externally members of the church, but internally far from Christ. Verse 9 Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That's actually just another way of saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see heaven. He will not see heaven because heaven is attained by spiritual means, by our union with Christ, by the Holy Spirit, by faith. Heaven is attained, obtained by faith in Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, notice he switches the spirit in you to Christ in you. He turns right to the gospel. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that's where we're still at in these bodies, right? Still given to decay and or sickness and mortality and decay. Somebody's going to bury you. And you're going to continue to be infected by this flesh. But that's not our true identity. Because the Spirit is life. And because of righteousness. In Christ gives us the Spirit of life and righteousness. You see, the Holy Spirit unites us in Christ for our justification. And we are imputed. We are given Christ's righteousness. We become righteous, perfectly righteous before a holy God. No more condemnation. No more separation. And the Holy Spirit unites Christ in us so that we might become righteous. That's the union. We are one in Christ to be righteous. And Christ is one with us to be righteous. You see, the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, he takes control of your life. And he will control everything in your life. And the result will be a Christian mind. Your mind will be different. And you'll have a different Christian life. You'll have a Christian mind and a Christian life. Now this doesn't mean perfectionism. We're not, we do not find assurance in our precision of the law, but in Christ's precision of the law. I like when Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He writes, I quote, to the church of God. He calls them the church of God. He calls them fellow brothers. But then he goes on to say later in chapter 3, but you are behaving like you're still in the flesh. He calls them carnal. He says because they were behaving, I quote, behaving only in a human way. And so he calls them back to the Spirit. He says because only the Holy Spirit comprehends the things of God. And that comprehension we need. And when we are in the Spirit, that leads us to the knowledge to live for God's glory in an otherworldly way. And so Paul says the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit change us, change us from within. In a work that externally moves us so that others can see it. 
And then we, we do become assured of our good works. We do become assured of the change of the Holy Spirit. But the greatest assurance we have is the gospel, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Paul goes right to the resurrection. What the Spirit did in the past, Christ's resurrection, he says, now affects our present. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Not in the future. This isn't future tense. Now tense. Present tense. Now is life in your mortal body. In that dead body. We now have life in our mortal bodies. It's a resurrection life. Resurrection is regeneration. Being born again is resurrection. You must be resurrected, Jesus said, to see the kingdom of God. The moment you first believed in Christ, that very first moment, children, that moment you first believed, you were resurrected from the dead. And if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home. And he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit will dwell in us. And we will begin to live in time lives. Right? Which doesn't mean we're going to go get bumper stickers that says Christ is coming back soon or trying to predict the dates. No, end time lives are lives of good works now. Lives of good works. And that takes us to the final doctrine, the doctrine of sanctification. And I don't have enough time to dwell on this doctrine, but this doctrine of sanctification is really the rest of Romans. Paul here, beginning in verse 12, is starting... To teach us sanctification. Guilt, grace, gratitude, right? Romans is on guilt, then it's on grace. Now we're leaving the grace and we're entering the life of gratitude. From Romans 8, verse 12, all the way to the end of the book. It's sanctification. You see, then brothers, he says, so then, verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. No. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now the life and death here, these words are, life and death are words, are biblical theological words. And they carry the full weight of the biblical theological understanding. Not just temporal life, eternal life. Not just physical death into the grave, eternal death. And so the Holy Spirit, through redemption, gives us a new history. A full biblical theological understanding of history is new life now that makes sanctification necessary. We begin to live for the Lord now. And then our death is just a completion of the work of sanctification. When we will die and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then one day that glorious hope that he will return and raise our bodies from death to life completely. Paul is saying here that the gospel delivers us to keep the law. Salvation history's fulfillment is seen in our keeping of the law. Sanctification is a fruit of justification. Justification makes sanctification necessary. It makes it possible. You see, friends, the law and the gospel are always and fully connected. And the Spirit connects them. 
And the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. And it's that same Spirit who is producing in us a mindset in which we love God and we seek to fulfill His will in all good works. Here's the point. Do good works, Christian. But you can't do them in yourself. It is the work of the gospel and the Holy Spirit working through you. It is the work of faith. The motivation of the Christian life is faith. And that's what you need to call slothful Christians back to. A back to a true understanding of God. A true understanding of the sinfulness of sin and the joy and the grace of God and the joy and the delight that that causes us in the gospel to then by the Spirit who moves and awakens in us the desire to love God more, which will cause us to hate sin more and more and more. We'll begin to hate that sin and more and more we will turn from it. Because we'll be ruled by a love, a law of love. And the gospel conquers. And that is how the gospel conquers. And the love of God will control us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.